The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, your host and the Director of Editorial Content at Republic EN. Thank you so much for tuning in today to listen to our latest episode. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Edward Maybach, a Distinguished University Professor at George Mason University and the Founding Director of Mason's Center for Climate Change Communication. Defining himself first and foremost and always as a public health professional, Dr. Maybach's exclusive focus since 2007 has been on climate change as the world's most pressing threat to public health and well-being. His research, funded by the National Science Foundation, NASA, and private foundations, focuses on public understanding and engagement in climate change. With Anthony Lizerowitz from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, Dr. Maybach co-directs the Climate Change in the American Mind Polling Project, a very important research program currently in its 12th year. This really cool project is best known for identifying and tracking the evolution of global warming's six Americas, six groups of Americans with distinct views, behaviors, and policy preferences regarding climate change. What group do you fall in? Anyway, Ed was just co-awarded with Anthony Lizerowitz Climate One's Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication, given to a natural or social scientist who has made extraordinary scientific contributions and communicated that knowledge to a broad public in a clear and compelling fashion. So basically, we're crushing hard on scientists today. And just a note, Republic EN is a program of the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University, and we are so happy and honored they house our important work. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm joined virtually, of course, by Ed Maybach for today's conversation. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. So first, as I was telling our listeners earlier, congratulations are in order. Thank you. It was, a good, it was a good day for me and, um, and for our center and hopefully for the climate. Well, you know, I feel like these days we need all the good news we can get, right? Absolutely. So one thing that I thought that the listeners would really like to hear about, because this was new to me when I joined Republic EN, it was, and I didn't even realize that you had been doing this for so long, but the Global Warming's Six Americas Project how I thought maybe it would be interesting if you told us a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, sure. We actually call it the Climate Change in the American Mind Polling Project. Um, and then the Six Americas were sort of the, the most memorable thing that has come out of those polls. Gotcha. Um, but the way the history of, of that polling project, Climate Change in the American Mind, really comes to the back to the, uh, the founding of, of uh, our center, the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason. And that is when I came to Mason to start the center, um, I knew that we needed that I, I frankly didn't understand how Americans thought about climate change, what they knew, what they didn't know, what misperceptions they had. Um, and it's pretty hard to communicate effectively with people if you don't know what's already in their minds and, and on their minds and in their hearts. 
So uh, we decided that starting a polling project was the obvious sort of first step. And uh, I just got so incredibly lucky that I, I met uh, Anthony Lazarowitz, who was had just moved to Yale to start what was then called the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication. And he and I recognized in each other uh, complementary skills. We were both <laughs> we both were interested in doing a survey. And so what started out as a single survey um, in the fall of 2008 just went so well. And we got a lot of positive reinforcement for it. So we've just kept it going. We do these surveys every six months for the past I guess, 12 years now. So it's um, like the Hotel California. You can never check out. <laughs> well, all right. But frankly, I wouldn't want to because, um, you know, Americans have their views about climate change are changing so rapidly. And it's really, you know, a huge pleasure and a privilege to be able to actually check back in with, you know, our, our fellow countrymen and countrywomen to, you know, every six months to find out what's on their mind and in what ways are their think, thoughts and feelings changing now. And it, you know, it sounds like it could be quite boring, but it's just the opposite. It's just been incredibly dynamic. And when we find something that's super interesting and we want to understand more about, we dive deeper the next time. And, uh, and some of the, some of the thoughts and feelings we, you know, we ask about every single time because our research has shown they're particularly important. But in other instances, we ask a question and then we move on the next time to something else. Well, um, to that point, I'm curious, did, I, I guess you didn't know when you first went into um, what became the Global Warming Six Americas project that there were six Americas. Was that surprising to you to see those that many different perspectives or did you kind of have some idea going in on where people would fall? It wasn't surprising because, in fact, the reason why we did that um, piece of research. And, you know, for, for those of us who are research nerds, we'd call that an audience segmentation analysis. Mm -hmm. So the reason why Tony and I did this audience segmentation analysis is because it just, you know, the, the popular rhetoric about climate change in the media and elsewhere was that there were two Americas. There was the America that understood that our climate was changing and that human activities were causing the change and that, that it was harmful and that we need to do something about it. And the other America was sort of seen as the America of dismissives, the Americas who, Americans who didn't believe it was happening or didn't believe it was human cause or didn't see it as serious and certainly didn't think we should be doing anything about it. And that just felt wrong to me. I was pretty sure, <laughs> haven't been, this isn't my first rodeo and haven't been around for a while doing polling research on a variety of public health topics. I was pretty sure there were more than two ways of seeing this issue. The fact that it turned out to be six, not, not terribly surprising, but not a foregone conclusion either. We, we actually limited our analysis. We didn't want more than 10. We weren't, we figured 10 is too many. We can't, we can't keep 10 in mind. Right, um, right. And so the, but the analysis as it came back, it, it sort of showed that there really are six distinct views out there. Um, and, uh, and thus was born Global Warming Six Americas. Well, I think that it's really interesting, especially for from the conservative perspective that, of course, when you started to explain that, that that most people probably, you know, were very black or white in this country, you're on, you're off, you're up, you're down. And so, yes, you are for climate 
change action and you embrace the science or you are against. And we know from the eco-right perspective that there are many nuances on that spectrum. And we just learned a new term a few weeks ago from one of our guests. She calls people who aren't really firmly in the the, dis, the disputer camp, but they're not really totally with us. Um, eco-hesitant was the word that she used. And Bob Inglis, our executive director, who I know you know well, he really embraced that term and liked that as a, a descriptor for those people who maybe they just need a little bit more information. Maybe they need the messenger to be the right person. And so I just think it's so fascinating. We have to know where folks are at in order to know what messages will appeal to them. Yeah, I like that term too, the eco-hesitant. And maybe what they really need is to know they're not alone. Um, so many, one of the things we've learned from our polling is that so many Americans feel like they hold, like they're the only one or they're one of a very small handful of people who hold their particular world uh, view about climate change. Um, and as it turns out, those people actually are the, the, the silent majority. Um, yeah. And by the silent majority, I would, I would characterize them as they understand it's real. They're, they're pretty sure it's human caused. Um, and they're growing worried about it. Um, but they feel like they are, they don't feel any kinship with, um, with, for example, the, the point of view that is most prevalent among liberal Democrats, because they see those people as being somewhat extreme. And they don't necessarily feel a kinship with the viewpoints that they hear expressed on Fox News. And, and so they think, and yet those are sort of the two viewpoints that get commonly carried by, you know, people in the media. So they feel isolated. They feel alone. They feel an, another nerd term coming up here. They feel non-normative outside the mainstream. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, it's just incredibly liberating. And probably the most single most important thing that's come out of our Six Americas research is that it shows that, you know, where the, where the distribution of views really lays. Um, and so the dismissive view, the really hardcore view that, that you hear expressed on Fox News all the time, that's now down to 7% of Americans who hold that view. And, and yet so many people felt like, okay, well, that's, that's half of America right there. Um, yeah. But it isn't. It's less than one out of 10 and, and shrinking pretty quickly. So I, I think one way to help the eco-hesitant, and I actually feel like Republic EN does a fantastic job of this, is to help them know, hey, you're not alone. <laughs> there, are lot, yeah, there are a lot of us just I mean... like you. And <laughs> in fact, we, you know, the, the, more, the better we can do of surfacing how many of us there are, um, the, you know, frankly, the more strength there will be in our numbers. You know, we get that a lot. People will find us online or on Facebook, on social media, and they will reach out and say, wow, I didn't know there were other people like me and I have found my tribe. That was something I heard recently from a woman. She just joined our spokesperson team, Beth Morrison. Hi, Beth, if you're listening from Wisconsin, was definitely more in the um, disputer camp. And at age 50, went and took some college courses. Her kids were out of the nest and husband was retiring and she was ready to do something that interested her. And she took an ecology class taught by somebody who was, you know, the professor was a self-professed Christian. So he was the right messenger for her. And she learned about climate change. And now she's, you know, firmly in the eco-right camp. And when she found us, she was like, I found my people. Yay. 
Yeah, I, I pay a lot of attention to your spokespeople because I find them to be so refreshing and so wonderful. Um, and, you know, they're, they are important voices in America that, that need to be, you know, we need to shine a light on them. We need to help. We need to help create a platform for them to share their feelings and their thoughts. Um, and when when they are given that opportunity, it has this incredible effect because they're so authentic. Um, it, and, you know, true, we, yeah. we live in an era and really this issue, the issue of climate change is pretty much uh, defined by, you know, these bitter partisan rivalries and ultimately economic interests at the heart of it. Um, and so there are so many inauthentic voices who are so loud and so angry talking about this stuff. But it's just so refreshing to hear your spokespeople because they're authentic voices and they're they're not angry and they're 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 caring, they're loving, they're, they're wonderful people who are, you know, spending time, frankly, doing something they think is really important, as opposed to doing something maybe more fun. Yeah. And, you know, we don't get to pay them. So they're really super volunteers. And, and because they aren't employees, you know, I never try to word police them. So I will edit an op-ed in a way that I think is going to make it more readable or attractive to an editor. But we never tell somebody what they can or cannot believe or say because it those words belong to them and they're coming at this issue from their unique perspective and that does lend the um, authenticity. I wanted to shift a little bit over to um, this morning. Actually, I was looking at Climate Views Over Time, your chart that plotted um, from the years 2008. This chart only went up to 2018. So I know that there have been, you've had surveys since then, but in this particular chart, I was looking at the, you know, it's happening, which took a pretty significant dip in 2008, but has now kind of worked its way back up. And then you had um, the the other lines being that it's human caused, which we definitely, again, a little bit of a dip, but more of a steady rise back up. And then the scientific consensus part. So if 71% in 2008, and then I think it was 75% now of registered voters say it's happening, are those four percentage points statistically, is that a big jump or is that kind of a moderate jump or, you know, how, what do the numbers mean to you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So you you pointed out something, but let me unpack it a little for, for your listeners, um, Back in when we first when we conducted our first climate change in the American Mind Survey in the fall of 2008, you know that was just it. The, the timing was just what it was. You know, we, we were we had, in a recession. <laughs> well, no, we we weren't yet. We weren't yet. That's that's my where I'm going with this. Um, so that happened to be sort of the high watermark of public acceptance of climate change was the fall of 2008. And then shortly thereafter we, is when yeah, the financial, really the world's yep. financial markets started to melt down and That's people right. started to lose the, and their mortgages went underwater. Mm-hmm. And many people were losing their jobs and, you know, just the, the, all hell was breaking loose. And, and then in our next survey, which actually wasn't six months later, it was like 13 months later. We, we didn't, because as I said before, we weren't really planning on doing this on a sustained basis, but, uh, but, uh, you know, we got by 13 months later, we were ready to do our next one. And, and what we showed was there was this huge decline. 
Um, and by public opinion trend standards, when I say huge, I mean huge. Uh, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but at, you know, it went from about seven out of 10 Americans accepting the reality of climate change to something less than, than six out of 10. So when you see a 10 or 15 percentage point change in either direction in a short period of time, you know, from a polling point of view, that's like a tsunami has just yeah. washed over. I actually, over I have the chart right here so I can tell our listeners in 2008, it was 71% believing that it's happening and then it was 59 percent by 2010 so um that i hear you now that's a 12 point drop and so you're saying that's that's big in the numbers world that's big in the numbers world and and there's one you know one possibility one one possible explanation for that is it was the economic turmoil and the, mm -hmm. the profound concern and the profound pain that so many american households were going through at that time that just frankly distracted people yeah. and and therefore they became less concerned about climate change or less convinced of climate change because they had other more proximal concerns like making the rent this month right um but it, it, it seems that that was not the case. What actually also happened right around the same time, and this really ties into Bob Inglis's personal or professional history in, a, in an interesting way, but what happened at that time was the U.S. House of Representatives passed uh, the Waxman-Markey Bill, mm -hmm. the first and yeah. only you know, major climate legislation. And, um, and it looked like it might pass, or some version of it might pass the Senate. Um, and in response to that, the, you know, the climate denial machine, and I, I use that term sort of figuratively, the various organizations that are very invested in, in the fossil fuel, our fossil fuel economy and, and their political friends, they went into high gear to try yeah. to sow as much confusion as possible. So when you mix all of that disinformation that well-funded disinformation effort with all of the confusion and angst and, and worry that came with the financial, you know, the, the, the financial disruption, the, the, um, the slowdown. It's not hard to understand why public opinion changed so rapidly in the wrong direction, in the direction right. away from the reality of the situation. But and then it, it kind of there was some slow rebuilding over the next five years. But it's really the most recent five years that are most interesting to me, because over the most recent five years, we've seen uh, really a sort of an escalation of that rebuilding of public awareness, public understanding, public concern about climate change. And we've now reached over the past year or maybe two, we've reached the new high watermark of public concern about climate change. And right now, now that we're in the midst of the first true pandemic of a cent in the cent you know the past hundred years, you could easily assume that we'd be so worried about COVID and keeping our loved ones safe from it, keeping ourselves and our loved ones safe from it, um, that we'd be less worried, that we'd see the same sort of thing happen as happened in 2008, to, between 2008 and 2010. But we're not really seeing that. We're seeing a, a little decline in worry, but generally speaking, the American people remain just as concerned about climate change as they were a year ago, two years ago, which really leaves us, as I said, at this sort of this historic high level of concern. RepublicEN.org is the leading voice for climate action, and we want to hear from you. Now, let's continue with this week's episode. Um, 
I was sort of wondering as I was looking at that scientific consensus figure as it applies to climate change and wondering how much that tracks with how people feel about COVID-19. Uh, that's really an interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a direct answer, um, but I can give you sort of some pieces of the puzzle and we can we can infer a tentative answer, if you will. So our research has shown that the single most fundamental belief, the single most fundamental um we'll call it a belief, um, that you can hold about climate change is whether or not is the degree to which you think the experts have reached a conclusion. Because if you think that the experts are still fighting about it amongst themselves, which we hear all the time, right? Like, okay, skim milk is the best. No, whole milk is the best. Um, (laughs) in in my, my home community, the public health community, we've, you know, we've really, unfortunately, because of the, the inexactness of the field of epidemiology, especially as it's applied to what we eat and what's good for us and not good for us in terms of what we eat, um, the public tends to be a little bit skeptical. And when they think that the, the experts are still battling it out, they, they, and if it's really complicated, like climate change is really complicated, they tend to decide to take a pass and say, well, I don't think I'm going to worry about this just yet. Um, when the experts make up their mind, then I'll, I'll decide if I should worry about it or not. So this talking point that this suggestion that there's a lot of disagreement among the experts about human-caused climate change, it it's in many, we, we know, as I said, it's the most fundamental belief you can hold. And so in some respects, it becomes the Achilles heel of climate science. Because as long as you have some so-called, you know, experts or credible looking sources on Fox News and elsewhere saying there's a lot of disagreement among the scientists. So it would be irresponsible of us to, you know, use public resources to address this problem. If, if and when they ever decide it's a problem, then we can decide what we want to do about it. That is such a powerful argument. In the case of climate change, it's entirely wrong. It's entirely false. Right. Those yeah. merchants of doubt are so good at making us think that there is this huge divide when the exact opposite is true. That's right. That's right. Um, and they, they, they knew that was the single talking point that they had to keep hammering home over and over and over again. And they do. They hammer it home brilliantly. Um, and then there's this foible of the human mind that also um, makes us pray to that, that insidious lie. And, and that foible is, is called the availability uh, bias or availability heuristic. When we see on Fox News, for example, um, Bill Nye, the science guy who's telling us a, that that you know, we should be very concerned about climate change. And and we see Richard Lindzen, a, a, uh, who, a gentleman who was in the Trump administration, um, telling us, no, no, we don't need to be concerned about climate change. Our minds conflate that experience with the conclusion that there must be that the conclusion that there really is a lot of disagreement among the experts. <laughs> and uh, so they just most people don't know the extent to which the experts have reached consensus. Our research shows that you simply got to if you tell people the number, like based on the evidence, more than 97 percent of the world's climate scientists have re- have concluded that human caused climate change is, is real. That number actually really helps helps people understand the, the extent of the consensus, although it, it doesn't completely reset their understanding. We we update our prior assumptions when we are given compelling evidence. But 
where we start, it's difficult for us to completely walk away from where we start. We might move in the right direction, but uh, but rarely is a single fact so compelling that people will completely alter their understanding of based on based on their prior view. So let's take that back to COVID, and we are going to make some inferences just sort of based on, you know, I, I guess I'm looking at it more from a very unscientific position where it seems that there is some overlap between those who have bought in to the merchants of doubt who say that there's no consensus, scientific consensus behind climate change to perhaps be the same audience who is not wearing a mask and not taking social distancing seriously. And I'm just wondering, so if we're looking at, say, this, you know, the six Americas, do you think that you could categorize our American response to COVID in a similar fashion? Do you think there are six Americas for the the coronavirus? Um, Not necessarily six, and they wouldn't map entirely on on global warming six Americas. But you want to know what, Chelsea, they'd be highly correlated. Um, And I'll tell you why. And it's incredibly unfortunate that we live in a time where um, economic interests have convinced us to be have convinced some of us, not most of us, but a few of us to be to, I mean, a small minority of us to be skeptical of scientists because the accusation against them is that they're just bringing their liberal bias into you know, and masquerading around as an impartial scientist trying to reveal the truth. Um, and that that accusation doesn't wash with most Americans. Most Americans trust scientists, frankly, health professionals, scientists and teachers. Those are the Americans we trust. Um, everybody else we trust much less, if at all. So when we hear the and the media, perhaps more than any, you know, we have least trust in the media. But when you hear these allegations over and over again on Fox News and in other right wing media sources, and, you know, I don't mean to bash the right wing media, but in this case, they really have been perpetrators of skepticism about the the impartiality of science. And, And that's just that just belies a fundamental ignorance of how science works. You know, we scientists, we we are the first ones to bash each other. It's called the peer review process. I was just going to say that. Like, you are skeptical when you're going through the process because you you almost need to find, you, well, not almost, you need to find your own holes, right? Your own holes in your argument so that later on somebody else doesn't find them. Exactly right. And nobody, you know, we we understand that it's best for society when we're the bad cops. Um, because if, if we really are bad cops with each other and by bad cops, I mean the tough guys, tough gals, you know, then, then we're saving society all kinds of missteps from, from what otherwise would be bad science. And you, you won't find any scientists who want to, to see bad science perpetrated on the public because that's just in nobody's best interest. So at any rate, that one, so one of the things that is going on is that a, a certain minority of Americans are growing less trusting of scientists, and I think that's harmful, and I think we're seeing that in play in the COVID epidemic. Another thing that we're seeing going on is um, there's just a lot of message confusion out there. We've got a lot of voices speaking, some of them speaking quite angrily, not a lot of simple, clear messages being uh, conveyed across so- American society. There are a lot of other societies. News. I have a 
many friends in New Zealand, for example, and including one of my former PhD students, Jagadish Thacker. And New Zealand has really beat this epidemic, this pandemic. They've stopped it in its tracks, and they're having a tiny little resurgence right now. But basically, they're, everybody in New Zealand is speaking in a common voice about, look, this is what we need to do if we want to protect ourselves and our children and our parents. And everybody is honoring that. Whereas here in the U.S., we've got a, you know, a thousand different voices all conflicting with each other. If, we'd, if all of the other voices would just pipe down and let the public health voices speak up, I really think we'd be in a much better position than we are today. Um, and and if, we, you know, if, we, if we start doing that going forward, I think we'll make incredible progress in, in dampening down the, the epidemic here and hopefully putting it behind us sooner rather than later. I feel like we all need t-shirts that say hug a scientist or something. It's, <laughs> you know, of, of all of the professions to not have trust in, it feels like a really, really misguided to pick that particular one. Um, what What is next? Do you know, or what, what is the next big survey that you all plan to roll out? Or is it a secret? Or will it be a, the next six-month iteration of your six Americas? Well, the, the surveys are, we like to think of the surveys as an engine of discovery, right? They, they keep us honest because they keep us focused on, on what people are thinking and feeling and doing. Um, but the surveys aren't an end to themselves. What's an end, to, you know, what we see as an end to itself is helping Americans understand the realities of, of human-caused climate change and just how serious this threat really is. And, and perhaps most importantly, what are response options are, like what we can do about this that's going to really make a difference. Um, and more and more, I feel like the most important thing to help Americans understand is um, the, the, the best response options are, are so fundamentally, uh, are so benefit laden that they pay for themselves almost immediately in terms of economic return on investment, in terms of more and better jobs, and from my perspective, most important, in terms of better health. You know, the faster we we finish this clean energy revolution that is well underway, you know, the faster we will clean up our air and our water and we will all live more healthfully as a result. You know, the surveys are just a, a barometer on, on what's currently going on. But the real purpose is to build public education programs, public engagement programs like Republican, so that people will step up and, and be counted and become part of the solution. And that's that's really, you know, what what I see our center as being all about. So we've got um, we have this wonderful project with television weathercasters and journalists. It's called when we when we focused only on TV weathercasters, we called the program Climate Matters. And we started with a single weathercaster in Columbia, South Carolina, worked with him for a year to help him educate his viewers during his weather segment about the local the ways in which climate change was changing people's lives in Colombia, And it, it worked beautifully. People, his viewers, learned more in the course of a year than did viewers of the competing station. So we scaled that thing up, and we now have more than 900 weathercasters who work with us on the Climate Matters program. We're in 94% of the uh, media markets in America with at least one weathercaster who, who we work with. And that's, to me, I just can't tell you how happy that program makes me because we the surveys pointed to weathercasters as a trusted voice people wanted to know what their weathercasters thought so we went out and we tested it and it turned out it worked in columbia south carolina and and now we know we just had a paper published a couple of weeks ago in a journal called weather climate and society and in that paper we made the case that this is 
you know, that that increase in that high watermark of public understanding that I talked about a few minutes ago, we we think we've been able to trace to track some of that back to the fact that TV weathercasters across America are educating their viewers about climate change as a local thing, climate change in their backyard. Yeah. And, and a few weeks ago, we had Carlos Carbello on this show and he that's a big thing for him, right, that you need to make climate change local and we call it global warming. But really, that seems so abstract. You need to find those ways to localize the impacts and um, the, the potential impacts and really make it something that feels more like it can be, you know, disruptive is the wrong word. Nobody wants to disrupt anyone's lives, but you want to make sure that people are aware of what is possible and what could happen and really internalize the connections so that then hopefully they will be on board and tell their lawmakers that they're on board for um, some sort of climate change action, which, you know, I I love everything that you guys are doing and it's so important and, and finding those little... Um, like you just described with the weather forecasters, finding those tidbits are, it must be really exciting for you, but it's also really helpful for those of us out there in the trenches trying to move people toward climate action. And all I'm going to say is that, man, I just hope we get climate action really soon. And I don't know if we'll turn our attention to other things, but it would be nice to at least have to contemplate that, right? Like the what do we do next with our lives? Look, they've solved climate change. Now we have to find something else to do. Well, let me let me end on a hopeful note. I, you know, as a as an employee of the Commonwealth of Virginia, it pained me that uh, that my the state that pays my paycheck was so frankly behind the curve on responding to climate change for the entire time I've been at George Mason, and that's now thirteen years. But in the last year, the Commonwealth, our legislature, and our governor went from, you know, really sort of whistling while uh, <laughs> whistling to to uh, distract themselves from the problem to leaning in and dealing with the problem. And, and this past term, the legislature implemented such incredibly forward looking, lean in type climate policies that we went from a, a state that was perhaps in the bottom quartile of the U.S. states to clearly, we're in a, we're in the top quartile now. We we're putting on a, you know we're going to make a good run at Maryland and California and some of the other states that are you know sort of out ahead of us. But uh, Virginia has come from way behind to getting way out in front. And if we can do it in Virginia, other states can do it, other communities can do it, and and the USA can do it as well. I was just going to say, and the federal government can do it as well. It is great that states have stepped up and. I feel very fortunate that I'm in Maryland. We're probably only, you know, 20 miles apart as the crow flies from each other. It sounds maybe to listeners like, wow, they're so far apart. He's in Virginia. She's in Maryland. But, you know, our governor has been very proactive and uh, that that feels good. But it would be great to see that level of commitment and action at the federal level. So we will just have to wait and see. And, you know, again, our warmest congratulations to you and just thank you for your support for Republic Ian and for um, you are just a great cheerleader to the work we do. And I am very honored that you spent some time speaking with me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Chelsea. Thank you. And now, our executive director, Bob Inglis, with an idea worth sharing. 
You know, some people see a contest between faith and science, see them as opposed. I can understand that, but that's, that's not my view. As I see it, us and God and science is sort of like my wife and I watching one of our five kids start to walk. It's a big celebration. You take pictures of it, you film it, come on, you can take another step. That's us and God and science. He's telling us, come on, I'll show you how. I'll show you how I did it. And you can stop the replication of cancer. Come on, I'll show you. So it's not a contest between faith and science. Faith is actually affirmed by science. Because we know from Romans chapter one that Paul says that what may be known about God is clear from the creation itself. Maybe it's a thought worth sharing. So what do you think, Price? Do you know which of the six Americas you belong in? Um, uh, I don't know which one I'm in because I, I, you know what? We didn't actually delve into what those six Americas were. I'm just in the one that is like, was ready for action yesterday. So yeah, I guess put, paint me and put me in that camp. Ed, Ed is a very talented uh, individual and in what he does with the data. And I thought it was interesting, you know, you guys talking about how you're not a data person and, but you, you tee it up just, you know, for Ed to, to lay out, you know, the numbers and stuff, because that's what, that's what he deals in every day. It's not about ideology. It's about, well, I guess to a degree it is, but it's about the numbers and what the numbers and the polling data that he and Anthony Lacerowitz from, um, you know, Yale Climate Communication that they come up with and all this wonderful, really wonderful data in polling and data that they just seemingly trot out all the time, new stuff. And, you know, clearly we're fortunate enough to be part of their team. But I, I could have listened to Ed talk for a long time just because it's just so interesting to hear an interpretation of, of what they do and the things they learn in their work. Yeah, and I think it does really inform the work that we do to know. We need to know what is on people's minds, especially the people who are eco-hesitant, to use Lindsay Linsky's term. Um, we need to know what's on their minds so that we know how to approach them. And we say this a lot, that we want to meet people where they are and then figure out who the right messenger is. And we aren't the right messenger for everyone, for sure, and we, but we are the right messenger for a great number of people. So just kind of figuring out that dynamic and who, who our target audiences are is, is definitely an important component to the work we do. Yeah, 100%. And it's funny, I, I think, how many times that since we've had Lindsay Linsky on the podcast, how many times we've used the term eco-hesitant multiple times, not just you and I talking. I know. But I with feel guests. like we need to like give her a <laughs> stipend for every, you know, a nickel for every time we say eco-hesitant. Yeah. One of the things that caught my attention uh, in your conversation with Ed was when he, he mentioned, I think it was in the first half, and he, and he mentioned it pretty, you know, bluntly. It said, one of the things I, I love and pay attention to to you guys and what you do at Republican.org is is your spokespeople and, and what they're saying, what they're writing, what they're feeling, you know, the tones and what he what he sees and gleans from them and you know not just because he was you know bringing attention to us but I just thought you know how much he values um you know in 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 his answer to what you were talking about just 
you know, how, what he likes to see, how much he enjoys seeing and what he learns from our spokespeople team, which obviously you've done a fantastic job of, of recruiting and growing and nurturing along the way. You know, that team is really important to the work that we do, and they are unpaid. And I just feel like that it is important to highlight that these are our super volunteers. They do it because they're passionate members of the eco-right. And let's be honest, everyone gets a little thrill out of seeing their name in the paper or maybe being able, uh, being interviewed for a podcast or for a radio segment or a TV segment. So, you know, those, those voices are important. They are unique. Each one of our spokespeople comes from a different, you know, just like our fingerprints are different, right? Each one of our spokespeople is different and they kind of cycle in and out in terms of who's busier at one point over another. And that's great because I couldn't actively manage over 30 people on the regular Mm -hmm. (laughs) and do everything else that I do. But it is sort of interesting to watch the ebb and flow and who's, who's really active one quarter and who's active the next quarter. And it just sort of has naturally evolved that way. But listeners, if you know somebody who is a passionate member of the eco, right. And who might be interested in, hosting a Zoom that Bob would participate in or um, they're active on social media and want to amplify our message or write an op-ed or write letters to the editor, we are here for you. So let us know if you're interested or if you know somebody who might be. And our dream has always been to find a way to eventually provide some compensation to our folks who do this. For now, it is definitely a voluntary basis, but you get the exposure and you get to sleep well at night knowing that you have helped move the movement along. Yeah, let me continue your, your recruitment pitch. And if if anybody listening right now, you know, look, we, we in this time that we're in, certainly it's 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 cut down on our travel, um, but we're still connecting with with groups and uh, organizations and clubs um, uh, almost as much as really as we were uh, when we could travel pre pandemic. But, you know, if you are a conservative, you've got, you know, friends, family members, you want to host a a coffee, a happy hour virtually via Zoom, we can set that up. All we need you to do is bring the audience. You know, if you've got, you know, friends, family members, conservatives that, that need to hear uh, the message, this is not a preaching session, but, you know, just simply a, a, a chance to have a informal conversation with Bob, let us know. Drop us a line. Um, we'd be more than happy to set something up like that with, with you and uh, your family, friends, uh, even organization. Um, please don't hesitate to to let us know if that's something you'd be interested in. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 50 people. If, if you're conservative and you've got, you know, say a handful of friends on one, you know, you can count them on five fingers, bring them. You know, we could do something small, intimate, uh, you know, morning, uh, afternoon, evening. Uh, but also, uh, Chels, quick shout out, uh, a couple of new members. You know, we do this every week. New members to Republican.org that are now standing with us. Shout out to John W. right here in South Carolina. Cheryl J. in Texas. Gary G. in Utah. Kyle C. Florida. Beth C. in North Carolina. So I appreciate um, just a handful of those and new members that we reeled off. And anybody that we didn't mention, uh, that I didn't mention right there, thank you for standing with us. We need you. Um, as Bob says, this, we're not just in the n- number collecting game in, in politics. It's all about who you got with you. And, you know, we want to be able to show and let members know that we've got this community of people uh, standing behind us, uh, you know, of conservatives that want to see free enterprise action on climate change, Chelsea. For sure. And I haven't said it yet, so I have to say it. 
please give us a five-star rating over on Apple Podcasts. Please drop us at least a one-line review. We will read it on the air. We'll make you famous. Haha. <laughs> um, you'll get your three seconds of fame. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those those reviews are important because when when you get a lot of reviews, it means that our podcast will be bumped up in um, the feed of other listeners who haven't found us yet. So very important. Great pitch there. And let me read one review that was that came in since our last episode. Um, this is about the Curbelo interview. Uh, they wrote, I love it, quote, the environment and the economy are the same issue, end quote. So appreciate this person uh, that wrote and gave us five stars. And certainly we will take five, we will take four, we'll take whatever you give us. But as you mentioned, um, you know, just give us the star rating. And th- the more we get of those, the easier it is to find, especially when it comes to energy, uh, you know, policy issue podcasts. So, Chels, real quick, uh, the DNC, I don't want to get too deep into that. Last week, this week, we obviously have – the RNC, but last week, night three, middle of the weekish, the DNC had their quote unquote climate night. Anything that you gleaned, observations, thoughts from what we saw last week, and obviously compared to what we may or very likely may not see this week? Yeah, I mean, I was jealous, right? Because there was a whole dedicated segment on this very important issue. And I'm not being cynical, I just frankly don't expect to see that next week or actually in the week that the the Republican convention will be going on at the time of this podcast drop. So, um, yeah, it's a missed opportunity, right? If, if there is not one and maybe I will be pleasantly surprised and there will be, but, uh, yeah, really given, especially where young voters are and, and where we all are. And you look at those numbers that Ed and, and Anthony and others are, are putting together and, 75% of registered voters say climate change is happening. So it's not a fringe issue to get behind. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. It would be great to and refreshing to see that kind of message. I'm just not expecting it. Yeah, my wife and I were watching it last week the on the night of the climate part and she said, "Wow, isn't that awesome?" you know, basically looking at the you know, after the, the a lot of the young activists uh, spoke, and I said, yeah, it is awesome. It's awesome to see young people getting involved and, you know, caring and having that, that passion. But I said it would be even more awesome if those were conservatives that were talking right there, young activist conservatives. And, yeah. you know, as Bob has, has mentioned many, many times in interviews and talks and in, in everywhere he's gone when asked, you know, that the the political left has taken the issue as far as they can. This is now up to us. It's up to you know people that are listening right now that may not have st- stood with us yet, that may be thinking about it, that are standing with us. It is up to the political right to come to the table because the left has taken this thing. They've thrown as much money. They've you know as many activists groups. It, it is it is now up to our side. We've got to come to the table and. Luckily, more and more, we're seeing more and more people, especially folks from from our community, you know, the Joe Pinions, uh, Nick Hueys, uh, Kira O'Brien, others that are younger conservatives that are talking about climate and not just talking it, but talking about the need for action with concrete, you know, ideas and, and proposals and ways to go forward with it. For sure. And I think that's a really nice segue into our 
next week's guest, which is, uh, drum roll please, former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who appeared at the Democratic convention this cycle, but really not a surprise. He has been quite a vocal opponent of um, the current president, but you know, just really looking forward to sharing our conversation with Governor Kasich. And, you know, he isn't quite there with us on the carbon tax yet, but he has ideas. And the more I think that's that's a really valuable point. We don't all have to agree agree on what the mechanism is for action, but let's at least agree on the need for action. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot more agreement, but uh, we will, ha- speaking of seeing, see what we might hear or not hear this week um, as the RNC continues to move along. But we will move along to next week. Chelsea, again, just want to say thank you to Ed Maybach again. Congratulations to him and Anthony Lacerowitz on their award for outstanding climate science communication that they recently got. And, you know, if you want to find out more, uh, certainly go check out uh, climatecommunication.yale.edu you and then climatechangecommunication.org for us at George Mason. You can go to both websites and find uh, data, the polling, the reports that that Ed and Anthony team up and collaborate on fantastic information and resources right there, Chell. So uh, that'll do it. Right. And, and if you know a scientist, give them a hug. <laughs> They're going through a lot right now. Yeah, they certainly are. But uh, again, thanks to Ed. We'll do it again next week, Chels. Uh, have a great week and uh, appreciate all our listeners downloading, subscribing and listening and tell a friend. Yes, please tell a friend and uh, have a great week. Be, be awesome, y'all. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 